Welcome to the Glittering Bell Jar, a Harry Potter podcast. I'm Valerie. And I'm Bree. We're two writers and Harry Potter fans. In this podcast, we explore the Harry Potter series by reading it backwards. As you might recall, Harry and his friends discover the power of the Glittering Bell Jar in the Department of Mysteries as it causes objects to move backward and forward through time. We're doing the same thing each week, working backwards through a few chapters, starting with Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Ready to explore Harry Potter in a new way? Then join us in the Glittering Bell Jar. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Glittering Bell Jar. We are in season two and covering the Half-Blood Prince, the best book in the Harry Potter series, according to your hosts, that is. Speaking of, I am here with Miss Valerie. How are you? Sorry, I hit mute because these kids are playing outside because it is such a nice day that I don't want to have them in the background of the entire recording. And we're going to leave that in the final cut because that is the (laughs) truth of podcasting on a nice day. I cannot open the window. So there's a fan on in the background and there are kids playing and (laughs) they hear them. It's like having a puppy. kids in the neighborhood. (laughs) Anyway, I'm good. It's warm today. (laughs) Amazing. Okay. Yeah. 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 How are you? I'm good. I'm good. You know, it has cooled down a little bit today, not by a ton, but I love having the air conditioner blasting. Very blessed to have an air conditioner and not to care what my bill light looks like whenever it comes. Uh, Sean does, but I just tell him to be quiet. And <laughs> don't worry about it. Uh, so everyone in my house is always cold. So but yeah, well, I'm good. I'm nice and cozy. Yeah, I see you got your Herbology sweatshirt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've definitely worn um, people who've been watching this season. You know, if you're if you're a repeat listener, you noticed a couple episodes ago, if you watch on YouTube, I was wearing my Harry Potter uh, Christmas sweater, <laughs> my Christmas jumper, because I just pulled it out one day and I was like, this looks so cozy because it was a cooler day. And I was like, I don't care that it says Christmas on it. It's a Harry Potter sweater. and I know I'm recording tonight. I am putting it on. I love the dedication. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So as a reminder, if you are not a repeat listener, it isn't your first time. We are reading Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince backward. So you need to go back and start at episode one if you want this to make any sense. And the best part is it is one chapter per episode. They are shorty episodes. They're usually 20 minutes or less. We have a couple that are really short. I can't even say 15 minutes because I think we had one that came in in the 12 minute mark. It happens sometimes. There's just not as much to go through. And we're not going to waste your time just chattering away. Well, we do that sometimes, but not always. Uh, but usually they're under 20 minutes. And uh, yeah, it's a great way to spend a little bit of time. If you've got to commute, if you've got to go for a run, if you've got to walk a dog, if you're cleaning the toilet, I don't know what you're doing, but whatever you're doing with us, we appreciate it. And we're going to just jump right into chapter 17. Let's do it. So chapter 17, a sluggish memory. Harry, Ron, and Ginny all arrive back to Hogwarts after Christmas break. Hermione, who had arrived hours earlier, gives Harry a parchment requesting Harry go see Dumbledore. In the office, they dive into two memories, one from Morphin, Tom Riddle's uncle, on the night that Voldemort came to visit him. That same night, Voldemort killed Tom Riddle Sr. and his parents, Voldemort's grandparents, all which he placed into Morphin's mind that he had done instead of Voldemort. The second memory is of the evening at Slughorn's office in which Tom Riddle asks him about Horcruxes, a memory which has been tampered with. The real memory, which we know about, Slughorn still has, and Dumbledore tasks Harry with retrieving the memory from Slughorn himself. And on that auspicious intro, here is the final sentence of the book. As Harry closed the study door behind him, he distinctly heard Phineas Nigella say, I can't see why the boy should be able to do it better than you, Dumbledore. I wouldn't expect you to, Phineas, replied Dumbledore, and Fox gave another low, musical cry. 
Hmm. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about that real fast? Since we're right there and it's not going to make sense if I jump around later. Fox or on Phineas? Fox. Fox. Okay. So Fox makes that sound uh-huh. then, and he also makes it when Harry tells Dumbledore about the story with Scrimger, which is in the next chapter we're going to cover, moving backward in the book. So we haven't talked about that yet. Fox makes the sound when Harry says, I told Scrimger I was Dumbledore's man through and through. So to me, when Fox does that the first time, it's like a sound of loyalty. Like, oh, you're loyal to Dumbledore. And I acknowledge that because I am loyal to Dumbledore as Fox. Mm. But then he makes the sound when Dumbledore is loyal to Harry. Interesting. So I think that Fox is like, has a special connection to Harry. I don't know exactly how to describe it, but I just noticed it was the only two times Fox makes that noise. And it's when Harry's loyal to Dumbledore and when Dumbledore is loyal to Harry. Oh, yeah. It's like a moment of love. And Fox responds to that because mm-hmm. Fox is all about loyalty. Mm-hmm. And those who are loyal to Dumbledore, Fox is loyal to them. Mm-hmm. So that makes sense. That's an amazing catch. I love that. Yep. That's it. I couldn't I couldn't leave that because it was just a little one. And it's in that final sentence. And I knew it wouldn't make sense if we tried to jump around to it later. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, it's hard for me to decide if I want to jump to Dumbledore and Harry's moment because I did I did love that moment and that is what you're talking about and they just have a beautiful moment but you know what maybe maybe we'll say that's a later because I do want to talk about it also has to do with my intro um Phineas and it's not so much about Phineas but it is about the magic of portraits and I find them very fascinating and maybe everyone knows this and I didn't I didn't quite understand portraits you know is that like almost like a horcrux Mm. is it a, a part of the person's like energy that was left behind I mean I know it's not a horcrux but you know bear with me and like a a good horcrux. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I wasn't sure. So I did some some digging. And it is, you know, of course, a, a painter who paints it. And then you have it, you have someone put a spell on it. And usually it is the person. So like, for instance, if I had my own my own painting, I would have it done. And then I would magically enhance it. And basically, it says the portraits can do a various amounts of things and it just depends the power of the witcher wizard that was painted and it also depends on how much magic was put into the painting so uh i'm just gonna read i actually went onto pottermore and i just i'm just gonna read exactly what it says because i find it super fascinating and i want to inform you guys educate some people so some magical portraits are capable of considerably more interaction with the living world traditionally a headmaster or headmistress is painted before their death once the portrait is completed the headmaster or headmistress in question keeps it under lock and key, regularly visiting it in its cupboard, if so desired, to teach it to act and behave exactly like themselves and imparting all kinds of useful memories and pieces of knowledge that may then be shared through the centuries with their successors in office. Mm -hmm. The depth and knowledge and insight contained in some of the headmasters and headmistress portraits is unknown, but the incumbents of the office and the few students who have realized over the centuries that the portrait's apparent sleepiness when visitors arrive in the office is not necessarily genuine. No, I just think that's so cool. Hmm. Yeah. That's super interesting. Yeah, I guess I never really thought, and it is kind of weird because the portraits are so, they're so like soul-like. They're like Riddle from the Diary, which was a horcrux, or like a ghost. Like they have so much knowledge of their who, their representation, who they're representing. Yeah. So that you have to teach them that. That's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. So, okay, that brings up a really important question. We know Dumbledore has a portrait in the office. Do we think Snape has one? I want to say he does. At the end of the last book, don't we see a picture of him? I don't think so. At the end? Am I making that up? I think he does. He was a headmaster. I don't even know if Snape would have had time to have his portrait painted in a year he was only headmaster for a year and he was killed unexpectedly and he wasn't old i don't know i don't either i don't either if you know dear listener let us know oh brie's checking you'll find out in a minute too and brie will verify what you know (laughs) yep 
He does have one, according to Harry Potter fandom, and it was in the headmaster's office at Hogwarts. I, I almost feel like it was in the book. I don't know. But anyways, yes. According to Harry Potter fandom, he does have one. So the reason I got on this was because of the uh, the fat lady, and it talks about how she got drunk, and that's why she was so like tired and perturbed that like they were bothering her and being so picky about the uh, the password was because she had gotten drunk over Christmas break, and I'm like, what? So. Her portrait was very cool, so she could eat and she could drink, which was something that the fat lady loved to do when she was alive. And security, those were her three main things. So those were imparted to her, but that's all she could do. She couldn't necessarily have in-depth conversations with you the way that a lot of the headmistress and headmaster um, headmasters do. Yeah. Hmm. That's fascinating. Yeah, uh, very interesting. So uh, I'm so curious about like, okay, we'll come back to that when we get to like um, Sir Cadogan, right? Like the the knight with the fat pony in book three and, and Prisoner of Azkaban. Because I feel like we meet these different portraits throughout the course of the series. And now that we know the magic of them, it's very interesting to like look at each one we know and figure out how that makes sense of like what, with what they were imparted with by the person who was painted into them. Yeah. Fascinating, right? Yeah. Thank you. That was a good, that was a good lesson. I was just sitting here absorbing. <laughs> good. I have a couple things that are kind of all over the place in this before we dive into the memories, which I'm sure we can talk about a little bit more. Um, the first thing is that I love right off the bat, by this point, Ron is already not wanting to be with Lavender. Now, he and Lavender got together right before Christmas, and it is like, I don't know, maybe, maybe a few days after the new year, and he's already like trying to ditch her. And they don't break up until... I don't know, well after his birthday, which is in March. Like they stay together for so long because <laughs> Ron won't break up with her. I just was thinking through the timeline. And I think this, at the as we get toward the end of this book, I will do another timeline of like putting some of the important points in time on a timeline and going through them like we did in Deathly Hallows. And Ron and Lavender's relationship is going to be one of those things because <laughs> it's like, why does he take so long to break up with her? I mean, the only thing that does it is Felix. And that's like in April, you know, <laughs> like... Come on, Ron. <laughs> well, uh, speaking as a fellow Pisces, uh, horrible at breaking up with people, but also he is a teenage boy and they snog a lot. So that was probably the main answer we can lend to it. Compensatory benefit that he sticks it out for. <laughs> <laughs> he probably tries to and they start snogging and he's like, ah, I'll do it later. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> this could be worse. <laughs> I could be not snogging, in which case, you know, <laughs> I'd rather be snogging. Uh, let's see. The next thing I had actually was a note on apparition. So last episode, we were talking about how they're taking apparition lessons. And they're in Flitwick's class, and they're talking with Seamus. And Ron says, Harry's already apparated. He actually got to he got to go on side-along apparitions with uh, Dumbledore, or I mean, somebody. And I thought it was really interesting that this was like such a novel thing to these folks. Like, so what happens? Like, whoa, Seamus... Dean, Neville, and Ron all put their heads closer together to feel to hear what apparition felt like. Why don't parents take their kids on apparition? Is there a concern, like, with a toddler that they're going to splinch themselves in the process, like, if they're not good at following directions? Like, I don't know. It just seems odd to me that you have this spread of young, magical people from a variety of families. And, of course, Harry hasn't apparated. Seamus is, his mom's a witch, so that seems like maybe she would have. Dean comes from a muggle family. Neville was raised by his grand, so she probably wouldn't have because that doesn't seem like how she traveled. But I just thought it was interesting. Ron's from a magical family, but they use flu powder, not apparition. I don't know. I wondered why none of them had ever apparated with their parent or parent figure if they had one that could. So 
Remind me, doesn't Malfoy operate with his parents because he makes fun of the Weasleys for going by the flu network? I don't remember that. I don't know that they address how the Malfoys get to Diagon Alley. But they make fun of them using the flu network because they have all the powder, all the, the charcoal on their noses and stuff. I don't remember that. Is that in the movies? It is, but I think it's in the books, too. It's in a movie, what, uh, the hmm. Chamber of Secrets? Hmm. I don't remember that at all. Yeah, I'm not sure. But then, hmm. yeah, Malfoy might be... Yeah, not Malfoy would be competent at apparating, you'd think, more. He'd know what it feels like, which seems to be how Harry becomes good at it in such a short amount of time. Yeah. Is that he knows what he's aiming for. He's felt it before. Mm. Okay. Because the description last chapter about, like, what apparition is supposed to be, like, focus your attention on the destination and then deliberate or whatever on, like, stepping into nothingness or what it's like i don't know what are those those are words i don't know what that means like how am i supposed to deliberate on becoming nothingness i don't this is not a real instruction dude anyway i don't have a wand i don't have a hoop maybe i just don't know what i'm talking about no it seems like even in the the chapter all the kids were looking at him like what what am i supposed to do like you're a horrible teacher Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that is why I feel like it, it reminds me of driving because they have a special instructor come in. Everyone has to pay extra mm. where driver's ed, you had to pay extra. You know, you had to decide if you wanted to do it where it's like optional. And I don't know, it just kind of reminded me of, you know, humans or muggles version of, you know, apparating way less cool. But yeah, I was taught by my parents. So I, I did side along apparition. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't have any we did not have any driver's ed requirements where I grew up. So what? Parents taught their kids. Wow. Good old Alaska. Also, when I was a kid, uh, yeah, I grew up in Alaska, and you, at the time, could learn to drive at 14. We could get farm licenses, so if we wanted to. So if we drove, mm. like, a truck only on our own farm, not on the highway or on dirt roads, mm-hmm. or if we had, like, a tractor license or something, but hmm. but we couldn't. Actually, what's funny now in Alaska, fun trivia, uh, they've raised the minimum age for learning to drive, but the age for learning to fly is still 14. So you can learn to fly a bush plane. And you can be licensed as a pilot in Alaska before you are allowed to have a driver's license. Interesting. Fun trivia for all of you out there. Because that's why last episode I made the analogy, is it like flying or is it like driving? Because <laughs> that, that's a thing that people in Alaska do is they fly places. Huh. Uh, anyway, back into the Wizarding World. Yes. Uh, I love, love, love in the memories. I love that this ties into Goblet of Fire, where we learn the origin story and Morphin's memory of the the house in Great Hangleton, you know, the death of the riddles, the mysterious death of the riddles, all of those details. I love that that gets pulled in. I mean, again, it's one of those threads that just runs deep in the story that you see, you know, here, finally, it's explained in book six, and it was introduced at the beginning of book four. That's, Mm -hmm. that's my favorite kind of detail to catch. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Uh, let's see. What else about the memories? I didn't really gleam a whole lot from it. I mean, other than the fact that we keep going back to this, but the big three, which I, <laughs> not the big three, the other big three, uh, we have Snape, Voldemort, and Harry. And even though Harry only had love for, you know, that year, I feel like there is a difference whenever you grow up and after, even after being abused for all that time, he probably never, he always knew that his parents loved him. And then especially when he goes to Hogwarts and learns that his mom died for him, even just knowing that there was that kind of love, I just feel like it had to make a dif- made a difference because Voldemort goes and he knows that his father disowned him and left his mother, you know, and, you know, his son, he left them. And so that is just the biggest form of rejection is to be rejected by a parent. You know, it just shows the difference that it made. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost like in Snape, so Snape's case, he has parents and they're not, they're unloving. Yeah. 
And like, that's obviously damaging to children. And then Voldemort doesn't even know. He has to go learn what happened to his parents. He has to go to the, like, learn the story of his mother dying and that she just gave up on him basically. And then learn the story of his father abandoning them. And then Harry, yeah, he doesn't have his parents, but when he finally learns any piece of it, and I will say like, his parents in the story the Dursleys tell him, they don't leave him by choice. They get in a car accident. Like that's the official story he's told. So again, he doesn't assume they don't love him or they left him. He he literally survived an accident they didn't. And so he gets to carry the idea that his parents loved him, even if it was for a short time, and neither Voldemort nor Snape ever had that as part of their personal narrative. You know what it kind of reminds me of is how Sirius, when he was in Azkaban, you know, this horrible place, which is kind of Harry's childhood, he stayed sane, Sirius stayed sane in Azkaban, knowing that he was innocent and that he didn't deserve what was happening and that he had a reason to leave. And that's kind of hairy. Like he he knew that he was loved and, you know, maybe deep down knew that he didn't deserve those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a very good observation. Nicely done. Thank you. The only other thing I had in this chapter, the reality that the Ministry of Magic should probably have standardized ways of interrogating people who confess to crimes. As you know, Brie, I'm a true crime podcast fan. I love listening to true crime podcasts. And I thought it was very strange that the Ministry of Magic would take at face value someone confessing to a murder. Because if you know that people can affect other people's memories, it should be standard practice to do legitimacy, to lift any memory charms, and to give them serum to get a true confession. You should never take a confession in the magical world at face value. Because it's likely, it could, it's not likely, it could be a false confession. And you have means of determining that. It's not like in the US where sometimes false confessions happen and it's really hard to find that out. And and like you listen to confession tapes and it's like, you know, you have to f- try and figure out why a person confessed. Mm-hmm. They can just do magic and know if a person has truly committed the crime or not. And they don't do that with Morphin. Mm-hmm. They just take him at his word and chip him away. And it's like, to me, I guess another example, uh, and Harry kind of mentions this, I think when discussing it with Ron at the beginning of this chapter, of the ministry being incompetent, of being a government of doing what government does, which is sloppy and undetailed work in many ways. I mean, Harry has lots of complaints about that. Because to me, this is obvious. And and I think Harry comments, he's like, they didn't even question him. And he's like, no, why would they? He was known to hate muggles. He was known to have a problem with this family. He was mentally unwell. He committed crimes before. But it's like, but yeah, but you could have just done a few charms and known for sure. And wow, then you would have caught out that there was this guy named Tom Riddle out there causing trouble. And we wouldn't have this book. Right, yeah, they're just lazy. I think that just is another example of them being, yeah, lazy and incompetent. And if they get a confession, why investigate any further? Uh, speaking of occupancy, I so you had me, you had me paying attention to Dumbledore performing occupancy on Harry. It's in their office. When Harry first get there, gets there, he's mad because Dumbledore will not pay attention to his story about Malfoy. He doesn't. He's like Harry, don't worry about it. Like they both feel like what they're saying is more important. And he, you can tell he uses occlumency here. Let's see. Harry sat there feeling mutinous. How would it feel if he refused to permit the change of subject? If he insisted upon arguing the case against Malfoy, as he, as though he had read Harry's mind, Dumbledore shook his head. Ah, Harry, how often this happens, even between the best of friends, which I love that, even between the best of friends. Each of us believes that what he has to say is more important than anything the other might have to contribute. He totally read his mind. Mm-hmm. As though he read Harry's mind. No, he probably did read his mind. He's yeah. that. He could just d- dabble into, you know, being able to tell. Also, he's been a teacher a long time and he knows how petulant teenagers can be. <laughs> it's probably like a well-educated guess with a little bit of magic sprinkled on top, just to be sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Good, good observation. I didn't really catch that. Mm. Uh, I, I jumped straight from that to the next paragraph, which you read about the quote where, you know, each of us believes what, what we have to say is more important than what the other have, might have to contribute. Yeah. Yeah. Good catch. Do you have anything else this chapter? Yeah, oh. thanks. Well, I got it from you. You know, we talked about in the beginning, but I really did love Harry and Dumbledore's moment at the end. Uh, if you don't know, basically, he talks about how the Minister of Magic came and talked to Harry and, or Harry says, he accused me of being Dumbledore's man through and through. And Dumbledore says, oh, that's so rude of him. And Harry's like, I, I agreed. I am. And Dumbledore's eyes get watery and Harry, obviously uncomfortable with feelings of love, looks down at his feet until it's safe to look up. And they have this like touching moment where he, you know, mm -hmm. just basically says, uh, what does Dumbledore say? Like, oh, that, that means a lot to me, Harry. Yeah, I just, uh, that was very sweet. Mm-hmm. It is a sweet moment between the two of them. It is a, to me, it's, it's as uh, Harry's becoming more of a equal, more of a peer. That they're building a relationship that's more than just teacher and student. That Harry and Dumbledore begin to have emotional connections beyond just the academic one they have. Yeah, I mean, for sure. He literally just, you know, moments before said, people have arguments even between the best of friends. Kind of, you know, mm -hmm. relaying that they are their best of friends. Good one. So. I like ending on that. Yeah, me too. Cool. Well, thank you guys for joining us. I hope you enjoyed it. I enjoyed this chapter. This was a good one. It is one of the reasons I love this book. Just these moments between Dumbledore and Harry and learning all this backstory. It's very, very fun. So uh, we hope that you also enjoyed it. If you did or if you didn't and you want to tell us about it, please head to your podcast player of choice. We're on, I think, every single one that exists, even the small small ones. So go on there, give us a rating, and then give us a review if you please. Uh, it does help us a ton. So if you enjoy this podcast and you want us to keep going, please, please, please go on there and give us a review. All we ask of you. Well, that, and if you want to, you can head over to our social media, Bell Jar Pod. We're on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram. You can also email us if you like. Uh, Valerie has an incredible website. Yep. Uh, the email to reach me is podcast at followthebutterflies.com. Followthebutterflies.com is my Harry Potter blog. If you listened to last episode, you heard us talking extensively about candles and candle making. And uh, if we get enough interest, I will start offering glittering bell jar-esque inspired Harry Potter candles over there that you'll be able to purchase and support the podcast. You can find all kinds of other stuff too, like costume making suggestions and recipes and travel guides and everything you need to know to have more Harry Potter in your life. Mm -hmm. Well, cool. Well, we will likely see you tomorrow. Yep. Have a good one. Glittering Bell Jar is a Harry Potter podcast produced by the Calibro Group in partnership with Wild Goose Creatives. It is an unofficial fan project that is not authorized, approved, licensed, or endorsed by J.K. Rowling, her publishers, or Warner Brothers Entertainment Incorporated. Our theme music is Carnival of the Animals R125, Aquarium by Moments, licensed via Soundstripe. You can discover even more magic on followthebutterflies.com.